Welcome to I Come As One, a podcast co-hosted by Black women on a mission to build community on the foundation of our culture and authenticity while holding ourselves and others accountable for championing our success and well-being. Thanks for tuning in to our empowering conversations about workplace trauma, career and business development, personal and professional growth, and so much more. Head on over to IComeAsOne.com for all of the links to watch episodes on YouTube, follow us on social media, and join our 10K community. Hope you enjoy this episode. Always with love, Fatima, Kristen, and Sean. On this episode of I Come As One, Brianna Jenkins shares her mission of inspiring members of her community to advocate for themselves academically, professionally, and personally. With more than a decade of leadership experience in higher education, Bri is breaking down how Black people can master the rules of engagement for bringing about positive change in predominantly white institutions. Tune in for success strategies and inspiration. If you'd like to say hey or leave a comment, reach out at hello at icomeasone.com. Today, we have Miss Brianna Jenkins, one of my old longtime friends, and I'm excited to welcome here today. Um, Brianna is in higher education, and she's worked at various colleges and universities for over 10 years. Uh, she's a native Floridian from Lake Mary. So anybody in that Central Florida region, welcome her to the podcast today. She has a bachelor's of arts degree from the Florida State University, where we actually met and were roommates long time ago and so many moons ago at this point. <laughs> Brianna continued on with her education to earn her master's of education degree from the University of South Florida. And she is currently pursuing her doctorate degree at the University of Central Florida, where she's studying with the intersection of public affairs and higher education. Brianna is also a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated and NAACP. And just to put this out here to help us connect a little bit more with Miss Brianna, she lives by the J. Cole motto, there is no such thing as a life that's better than yours. And she uses this in her everyday life and within her community. So Brie, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to give a little intro about yourself? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Kristen, you hit it right on the head. Thank you for introducing me. Um, I am, you know, very happy to join you all today to kind of chat with you um, and honored that you all have, have been able to, to invite me to the podcast. So thank you. Yeah. So let's just get some things kicked off and started. So education, why education? How do you connect with that field? And then maybe giving us a little mm. bit about your, you know, feeling or your experience as a Black woman within education and navigating that space. Absolutely. Um, so I guess to start with talking about why education, for me, it really is about um, my family, my family growing up, um, my great great grandmother and all of my mother's side are from Mississippi, from a small town called West Point, Mississippi. So very um, heavily uh, heavily impacted, I think, by a lot of various things, predominantly by, from a black 
predominantly poor. Um, and so my family education was thought of as a way to mobilize, to um, change your life and change your circumstances personally. So for me, when I thought about a career, my grandmother was a teacher. All of my great aunts were teachers. My mom was a teacher yeah. um, in, in various capacities. And so when I thought about what I wanted to do, this clicked for me. I also went, like uh, you mentioned, to college at Florida State University. And part of what really made me chop hard, go no. Yes, go no. Um, part of what made me really like this idea was my involvement there and in seeing that all of the people that I interacted with majored in education and were educators. So for me, that was, it was a very easy thing. Um, and as a Black woman working in education, I find that a lot of the traditional education spaces weren't designed for us. Um, black, getting a quality education as a person of color or a Black person was not even a reality until 50, 60 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so when we think about, for me as a practitioner, how I wanted to create and navigate spaces and, and open doors for other Black students, I wanted to make sure that they saw themselves in the spaces I was creating and that the educational opportunities weren't missed because of our lack of cultural awareness um, for what Black students go through. And so that's mm -hmm. that's kind of where I feel like I, I relate to and, and choose to persist as a Black woman in, in education because um, if I don't, then who will? <laughs> and, and oftentimes it's not people who look like us who are doing that. Yeah, for sure. And if Sean was with us today, she would say, listen, okay. Sean <laughs> would be in years. It's not that long ago. And we it's just not. have to like take a moment for that. We're still talking about first. Correct. We're still mm -hmm. talking about only. And 50 years is just one generation, you know, my, and, and yeah. um, we've come a mighty long way, but there's still just so much work to be done. So I applaud you for working in such yeah. a space that it was not historically for us. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy to work in, especially at a predominantly uh, white institution as well. Yeah. So you, the word you used was resistance. And that's really what it is. So mm -hmm. um, you, you don't have an easy job, but thank you for sticking in there and doing it. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a collective effort, right? Like I cannot, I cannot do the work I do by myself. I have to have allies and I have to build those allies, allies strategically in, in order to make sure that everyone's invested in the idea that I have for what I want to provide for my students, but also the idea of education as a whole. Um, and I find that sometimes that changes depending on where you are, but agreed, it's a collective effort. Yeah, so to that last statement though, it yeah. changes on where you are. So right now you're the director of student conduct and interim Title IX coordinator of a university in Florida or a state yeah. college in Florida, excuse me, but how do you feel that all comes together and brings that experience back to you and even for your students that you're in interacting with as well? Right. Um, I think that the place that I've chosen to work recently has most closely aligned with, with what I, I seek to do, which is create access, right? Um, and so I work at a state college. Um, we have both two-year and four-year degrees. So, mm -hmm. so most of our student population 
are that two-year community college, technical college student, right? So we're not talking about students who are 18 years old or 17 years old. We're talking about students who have a a life under their belt Mm -hmm. and also students who may not have been offered the same opportunities as a lot of other students. So we're talking predominantly Black, predominantly Hispanic students. Mm -hmm. And so I strategically chose this position because I knew that this would give me the opportunity to most significantly and heavily impact those students. Um, What's interesting though, is that I don't think that in my previous role, I wasn't doing that. Like in my previous roles, I was at four-year institutions, four-year universities, big universities. So all of the universities I worked at had over 20,000 students at them, right? So um, I don't think I wasn't not doing that. I was still intentionally making choices um, to do things. So I'll give a a small example of that. Um, I worked at a university and at that university, I worked in housing Um, Mm -hmm. and housing and residence life. um, Student affairs is not for the faint of heart. Um, (laughs) And what I found was that all of our student leaders at that university were predominantly white in a city where the demographic was half of the demographic are black. So You have all white student leadership in a half black city. Mm -hmm. For me, that was problematic, but obviously all my supervisors were white men. So they didn't see a problem with it, right? Um, And so for me in those roles, in my hiring decisions, I chose to hire a staff that was predominantly black. So you look around and, and that's a single decision I was able to make in that capacity with what was in my control. Um, and so the higher I've been able to, to climb within higher education, I increasingly have more control over those decisions and am choosing to increasingly diversify spaces for my students. Um, so where we started with this, with this hiring decision to do that, I, I now get to make decisions about, okay, which cases am I going to pursue on behalf of the college for students, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what type of testimony am I going to allow from a faculty member when we're talking about a Black student, right? Um, What am I going to consider? So with greater power comes greater responsibility in that regard, but in whatever space I've chosen in higher education, I've intentionally wanted to take positions that allowed me to have a depth of responsibility and depth of access um, Mm -hmm. to make those choices. Yeah, what you just said Uh, about representation is so important. And you said within your control and being able to make those decisions, I want to just emphasize that because in my conversations with so many career women, Black women, they tend to shy away from supervisory roles, leadership roles, management roles. And I understand that there's a risk and a burden associated with climbing that ladder. And when you're the only one at that table, but on the flip side of that, you have to be in the room in order to, in, and in the positions in order to affect change. And so right. you, you, you just articulated the direct result of what happens when we're in the room. We can open the yeah. door to bring more folks like us in and to um, do that sponsorship, that mentorship and continue that cycle, which is so important. So yeah. Yeah. Um, one, one question I have, what are the just two or three like biggest challenges that you have seen from your role being embedded into these institutions? Um, 
so you only gave me two or three so i'm gonna try to keep it split some of those up but yeah. um so i will honestly say working in higher education overall is a great gig like I don't want to discourage anyone from getting into higher education, especially Black women, because like yeah. you mentioned, in order for us to have seats at the table, there has to be someone there to create them. Mm -hmm. So I will say that for me, some of the challenges working in higher education is that education itself is very old as an industry and set in its ways about a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, in particular, one of the ways that I found it's been difficult to to be in that space has been the ability for me to be authentic and in how I express myself. Um, I will tell you that I'm fortunate enough that my parents was a speech and language pathologist. And so she had me sitting at the table practicing my R's and my S's when I was a kid, right? Um, yes. And so, but I recognize that the code switch aspect of being a black woman when you around your people you mm -hmm. you are you be you you are with your people and that's how you converse yeah. so i'll give an example of this is that um with one of my colleagues because you know there's always you know what i found is what i was like to find the other black woman where where is yes. that person in that, that is Sean right all day. right i all find day. i find i find the other black woman where is that person i can kind of oh hey yeah you, you the one that's what you she said yes. you know um you know wanting to know you know what what is the what's the real conversation right so we're having a conversation and it gets a little elevated because we're laughing and we're you know talking with each other and and it's in it's in her office so this is her space right her supervisor comes and says hey um would you know would you, would, would you mind if you all just lowered the volume now mind you if this were during business hours this would be fine yeah but I want to add a little bit of context so this was at 5 30 at night right. so there are no students there's no client there's no clients because she worked in a service student service there's no clients mm -hmm. There is nothing happening at this point. Um, and so authentically, you know, we can be loud. We can be, yeah. we can, we can be jovial and boisterous. You know, not all of us are. Um, so I don't want to stereotype us, but I, that we can be when we get around people we're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And so I found a challenge to my authenticity as a, as a person and as a black person in this space, because even when I'm joyful, I'm not welcome in this space. Right. Um, and, and so that was that was the first thing. I think sometimes when you choose to live authentically as who you are, sometimes that authenticity, because you are a black person, mm -hmm. can be challenged. Um, and you are told to act a certain way or present yourself in a certain way. Um, another example is that I often get told how well I speak um, by white people in my in my fields. And I find that really interesting. It's a day. Because, you know, <laughs> you, you, you see you see all these degrees on this I mean, right like right. you see who I am so why would you think or or make that as a comment as a commentary right so mm -hmm. so I think there's just in addition to the challenge of authenticity that brings me to my second point in that there's a lack of cultural competence that Ooh. has been required of people in education for a long time mm -hmm. um what is required of them is that they're subject matter experts. So, you know, if you want to teach physics, 
you must know physics, you must be a physicist, right? Not that you must be good at teaching physics, you yeah. must know physics, and you must also be able to have your message received by students. A lot of times what institutions of higher education miss is they focus on the subject matter and the accolades that a person has received, but not their ability to accurately disseminate and relate to people. Mm -hmm. So you get people who have been teachers for 40 years mm -hmm. because education is an old field yeah. who have never had a conversation about their own self with a student or with another person. So when they are challenged with that, that lack of cultural competence just comes shining through. Yes. So I think that, you know, those are the things that I would say really affect me because when I'm having a conversation with a faculty member about a student, most often I'm having conversations when something has gone left yeah. with a student. Um, I often have to do a lot more heavy lifting because I have to also teach them in yes. addition to doing my job. So I can't just do my job well. I don't mm -hmm. get that privilege. I have to also teach someone how to receive the message that I am doing that makes me do my job well, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, so my last point would be that it is double the work in higher education. <laughs> yes. To accomplish as well. For, <laughs> I mean for for half the pay. Mm -hmm. When I um negotiated my salary, I was very intentional with telling my boss that very thing. She thought I was a little nuts because I said, <laughs> I'm not only going to have to do my job well, I'm going to have to teach people to accept me doing my job well. Mm. So because of that, this salary that you are offering me is really cute on paper. <laughs> But I'm going to need another 10% to really make that shake for me. Ooh, because if yes. I'm going to do jobs, if I'm going to do multiple things by just being me, because it's not only I can share with a faculty member, okay, this is what I would like you to do. They're automatically going to second guess my expertise because of how I present myself. Yeah. So I now have to work twice as hard to do my job well for that to be uh, effective. Um, and so I think there's that last part too, is that, you know, that saying of working twice as hard just to get just as far is not something that only happened 60 years ago. It's happening yeah. now because folks are resistant to learning about cultural competence. I mean, we see, especially I work in Florida, so the woke <sighs> bill is real. Like people don't want to hear about mm -hmm. themselves they don't want to mm -hmm. hear about an understanding for others and I think that really does make things especially in higher education very difficult because we are so ruled by those legislative pieces and, and that cultural environment so I just have to say a couple of things are resonating with me because <laughs> you know Bree is on the education side and I've always been in the healthcare side right but to your point about in education, you're looking for a teacher who can teach physics, not necessarily about those other pieces, about being a teacher. Like being a teacher is a social worker. It's about like checking in on your students, being able to teach a material in multiple ways so that someone can grasp it. There's different learning styles, et cetera, et cetera. And in the healthcare field, we're looking for someone who's a doctor. Do you are you board certified? Are you a specialist? Great, we're hiring you. But then where is the bedside manners? 
that's always the problem the jokes Uh, the comments the rudeness the bluntness is just accepted because you're a doctor and I don't think that's okay and then coming to your last point number three about adding tax because I have to teach people I personally think we need another mini episode about your negotiation tactics because I absolutely the moment you cross into being a manager and this goes back to everything we've said so far like a lot of black and brown women don't want that because of that kind of extra step and work that you have to do on a regular day we're already teaching and almost asked to speak for other black women and other black men and the black population anyways but now in a manager's role you have to teach them to respect you teach them to respect others. I mean, I could share stories, but that would be telling of where I'm working <laughs> and some of these stories about the, I mean, just complete, just shock, like jaw hits the ground because I can't even believe someone said that to their staff members. And they're saying it in like open spaces, not even behind closed doors without witnesses to say that that didn't happen. And you are obligated to say something. And then on top of that, the perception of, you you know being too strict too stern no sense of humor because mm-hmm. you're correcting culturally incompetent you know competent yeah. comments like you just can't overlook that once you correct. become a manager correct it's like what's I, wrong with you don't you get it yeah <laughs> absolutely absolutely I have never had my delivery questioned as much as I do in my job yes and it's because I am expected to smile Mm. and look pleasant and be amenable and be happy even in the face of blatant disrespect. Um, Because, and I truly believe this, I think it's because when people look at Black women, they assume we're angry. When in reality, we're justified. We, We, Solange said it best, you got a right to be mad especially when you are struggling and wanting to persist in systems and spaces where people do things like you just mentioned. Um, And and we're expected sometimes to take that because like medicine, higher ed is a very old industry and and with its own norms and with its own expectations that comes with that. It's not just an old industry too, it's an arrogant industry. Correct, yes. Correct. Like you, you, are privileged you know it's a privilege for you to teach at a college you know uh, on a college campus or mm-hmm. to be a tenured professor we that's a gift that we're giving to you or I have such a problem with a lot of these uh, research conferences where oh you have to pay to present your work or right. when you publish something mm-hmm. they're making money off of your product and you're not so the whole institution is built on you know, it is a gift for you to come here, let alone people are going in debt and, uh, you know, burning out and all kinds of things to try to to achieve this American dream of college education. Mm-hmm. But, right. but it needs some dismantling. Um, Kristen mentioned the mini episode. We just wrapped <laughs> up a conversation on authenticity and it's set out to be a mini episode, but it ended up being our longest one yet because there's just mm-hmm. so much to uncover. And that example specifically that you mentioned about the speech, I was reading a book called Subtle Acts of of Exclusion, Subtle Acts Mm, of Exclusion. And it's kind of the modern thinking around microaggressions, sort of retiring that term 
and talking about it in a way of exclusion because that's what it is Mm -hmm. and in that book they use that specific example you're so articulate you're so articulate and what we know is crawl yeah Mm -hmm. because because there's a difference in in your you come from a background of speech language pathologist so not the pronunciation or the inflection or the accent but how clear you deliver a message makes you articulate Uh and I can I've seen the smartest people who can never give a coherent sentence yes but because it comes out of our mouths with our accents or what they expect us to sound like they can't even understand that we are being articulate even if we are speaking in AAVE exactly (laughs) absolutely absolutely and when you consider that Uh, people who speak English aren't even of the global majority. The global majority of people don't even speak English and don't Mm -hmm. speak in a language that is understandable to the average American, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a a vast amount of also privilege in that statement when you're having those conversations with people to, um, and then yet when I call them out and say, you know, Um, you know, I, I always say what's understood doesn't have to be explained. So if you don't understand me, maybe it wasn't for you to to understand. Um, and and, some means on that, how people misuse. Right. Oh my God. Yes, yes, exactly. And so I, I agree. That's a, that's a great point, um, to, to talk about that we're, it really is an act of exclusion, um, Mm -hmm. to address specific behaviors by people of color and attribute them as enlightening them or elevating them above other people of color right. mm-hmm. um, because of how they perform them. And I think that's- mm-hmm. If true. I could ask um, one question. So you were talking about that, that risk-taking, you know, yes. for being in that position of, of having to teach people what to do. And you're right. The research says that people um, perceive our number one trait to be strong and angry. Yeah, one and two. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Um, and during my research for my dissertation, I also talked about the penalty when we're in leadership. So if you're a man in leadership and you exhibit leadership traits, then you're rewarded. But if you are a female and let alone being black in right. a leadership position and you show those same leadership traits, you're penalized. So could you talk about um, any time where you had to like face uh, being being uh, penalized for taking that risk of doing what's right and stepping up. Absolutely. So um, I think the most, the biggest example that comes to mind, um, unfortunately, there have been a few um, where you make decisions that are well within your rights and and role as a leader. And because of your expectations, I think specifically as a woman, you you don't receive the response that you expected to get, especially when your other maybe white male colleagues did the same thing. Yeah. Um, I worked at a institution in housing and I was in the mid-level. So, um, you know, if you think about housing, traditionally it's structured, there's your entry-level staff. Um, we call them hall directors or, mm-hmm. um, you know, residence hall directors. Then you've got your mid-level staff, typically our assistant directors, and then you've got your director of um, residence life or of housing and residence life. And so I was an assistant director at that point and um, I supervised hall staff. And, and so part of my role is accountability, unfortunately. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's, that's, that's the difficult part when you are a woman leader is, is having to hold people accountable. Um, unfortunately, I think we draw back to this expectation of me to teach and to be mothering to my staff. Um, I'm expected to make my staff more like comfortable and happy and, and healthy mm-hmm. and, and, and usher them through this role and be, be a mothering figure for them. Um, and I knew that to be true because when I attempted to document one of my staff members, it became an issue um, enough so that I had to go through every level in not only my department, but in my division to vet that documentation um, so that I could issue a letter of counsel. We're not talking, I was trying to fire them. So let let's have a conversation. Right, to have a conversation and counsel the staff member appropriately, multiple levels of my institution, right? And at every level, I'm being asked to dot my I's and cross my T's. I'm being asked to reword things. I'm being asked to have additional conversations with the staff member in question. I'm being told that no one else in your department has documented someone, so why are you doing it? I'm being told that um, we just don't do that here. We, We encourage and uplift our staff, and this isn't encouraging or uplifting. And my response to that was the most responsible thing that I can do as a leader is to hold my staff accountable and is to uplift them through counsel. You are not allowing me to do that. So help me understand. Um, Did my Mm -hmm. own back channeling and understanding of that process and through that process was able to determine that not only was I the first woman to be able to document anyone in my department, I was the first black woman to document anyone in my department. Every letter of counsel that had been issued in my department was issued by a white man. Mm -hmm. And every letter of counsel had never been reviewed by my director at that point. Wow. So I asked my director in our following meeting because, you know, he, he was unaware that I had done this back channeling, of course, but when you're a woman in leadership, you have to be first knowledgeable, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And then you have to be interconnected. So you have to know where you have to, you know, know where things are, are in your, in your industry. You have to be able to know how to find those answers when they're not being provided to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I went to my director and I said, I really need to understand why I am being asked to edit and, and go over this with a microscope said, well, you know, whenever there are these documentations, our, our institution doesn't like these types of documentation because um, they make our staff feel that we don't believe in them. I said, I said, it's interesting that you state, and these are my exact words, and I think this oh, might be why I got in trouble. Uh-oh. Knowing Brie, I, I know what she's about to I say said, is 100% I said, I said, it's spot on. I said, it's interesting that you talk Bree. about your staff feeling unsupported because I feel unsupported right now. Right. I said, I am well within my rights and my role to document mm-hmm. my staff and you are having me jump through literal hoops to do so. I said, in fact, the conversation that I, and the counsel that I want to provide is not even a, a point anymore because it's been a month since right. I've submitted it to you. Wow. And I said, help me understand how you as my supervisor are empowering and supporting me to do my job in this moment. And he said, I feel that there's a tone And what you're saying, he said, I feel like there's a tone that you 
have an issue with the directives I've provided you. Now, this is where, you know, they freeze the frame and you say like, this is where you had me messed up at. Like, yes. you know, like you're like reflecting automatically. This is where I knew that no matter what I did in this moment, he was one, tone policing me. Mm-hmm. Two, skipping over the point that I was making by neglecting and deflecting from what I had asked him to do. Right. And three, that he had no intention of supporting what I wanted in this moment. Because if he had, he would have said that from the beginning, right? So understanding that whatever hill that I was about to climb was either going to be a hill that I was going to scale successfully or a hill that I was going to die on. I chose violence that day (laughs) and told him. Well, you live to tell about it. (laughs) And and I live to tell about it. And I live to tell about it. I mean, because at the end of the day, you can't fire me for trying to do my job, right? It's a procedure in place. It's a procedure. There's a procedure in place. And I think this goes back to being knowledgeable, right? If I was not equipped with the knowledge that you're not going to fire me and two, that I'm doing my job and Mm -hmm. three, that the conversation I'm having with you, only you and I are present to talk about it. So we can, we can take that where we need to. And four, that I have on record documentation that supported this letter of counsel because you always have to be knowledgeable and keep good receipts. Um, that's where I that's where I was able to become empowered in that conversation. Had I not done that background work, I wouldn't know what it was like to have that conversation to be armed with that information. So I wouldn't be able to tell him after our conversation was getting more spicy, wouldn't be able to tell him that I'm the only woman that has submitted documentation in our in our department's history and I expect as a woman that I'm supported by my male supervisor yeah (laughs) words and they don't even get it because one thing that it brought to mind for me is let it have been you that needed the letter of counsel it would have been issued quick the letter would have been issued and my signature would have been in HR the next day yeah because that's how things work and so understanding that those hurdles needed to be climbed and, under, and understanding that if I had not done it, then someone else would have to fight that same battle, right? Mm-hmm. If I had not chosen that hill to die on and ultimately had to have several conversations with my supervisor about mm-hmm. my behavior in that conversation, <laughs> um, then that would have been something that somebody else had to deal with. And again, my philosophy through higher ed is about creating access and about, and about making sure that others have seats at the table after me. So um, I, I don't mind doing that, um, but I think that is a, definitely a pitfall of leadership and a pitfall of being in higher education in a time when things just didn't quite work out for me how I needed to. Um, I think that was the moment also where I learned I needed to leave that position so that I could be mm-hmm. better elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Knowing when to go is so important. The, especially, in- especially, yes, especially as... <laughs> As women leadership, you have to know when you're the only person applauding for you and you have to mm. go where you're celebrated, right? Um, and not where you're tolerated, where you know your presence is a diversity check mark. You have to go where some and sometimes, you know, sometimes in spaces where you are a diversity check mark, where you are kind of that check box. Um, those are spaces where you can be celebrated as well. And those are spaces that you can make a niche for yourself and definitely persist in an effort to create that access. 
But I think sometimes we stay in those bad situations longer because we think that we are in, we are supposed to suffer for our art or for our work. And I don't believe in that. And, and yeah. I think as black women, we can choose to move on in a, in a way that's, that is respectful of the work that we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And in a way that maintains us and supports our personal development and allows us to recover from those, spa- those spaces. Yeah, I, f- I feel as though in most cases we stay and we stay longer because we've normalized the behavior that we are enduring day to day. And Correct. when I think back on like my conversations with my parents, right, they come from a different generation where you yes. stayed in that job for 20 years. Yes. And I remember like years ago, I started out, I maybe like two jobs in or something. And I call my dad. And I was like, daddy, I got another job. I got a little bit more money. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. You think he'd be excited for me. My dad was like, what do you mean? You're leaving these people's job. They gave you a chance. And you know, we're Jamaican. So the conversation was a little bit different <laughs> to be clear, but he was just so shocked that I'm leaving a job that I had been in for two years out of school, but I'm like, they weren't giving me any more money. I didn't see the path for me to go. And I didn't feel comfortable in this space that I was in. And then now he's seeing like, oh wait, this is the new generation. Like we don't stay in jobs for 20 and 30 years until we retire. And I think a lot of that comes in as, you know, black and brown people where we might feel where, or we've experienced it enough in different situations. We're like, well, we're just gonna be treated this way wherever we go. And before we wrap up, I just wanted to make sure like we touched on this too, as far as like, I thought starting this you know, podcast interview that it would be the difference being of belonging uh, between being at a PWI versus non-PWI mm. as a professional. But now I'm thinking it's more about the size of the organization, because there are Mm -hmm. studies out there about leadership and training for just staff in general. Size is one of those things that is used to measure that, you know, experience. And so I'm wondering if your sense of belonging has changed Mm -hmm. based on the size of your organization. And then to segue into your experience as being educated and going through the system on a different side and being a student whether that's undergrad or grad, whatever program you want to use, because, you know, I'm a deer in headlights after my last couple of degrees, Um, you know, what that feels like and feeling like you belong in these spaces. Hmm. Well, I think to go from the point of institution size as a marker for training and and sense of belonging for staff, I think that matters. Mm -hmm. Um, But I But I would also say that there are organizations with tons of resources out there, institutions with all the resources and the money available, and they train their staff well and still experience the same issues in terms of the retention and valuing of their women of color, of their Black women in spaces, right? Um, I think about the NYU's where their faculty, their Black women faculty had wrote a letter basically stating you got us here and yeah. <laughs> paid us well. What now? What now? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I think, and there's, there's a, there's a point to that. I think whether you work at an HBCU at a, a Hispanic serving institution at an, um, I, native Islander, American Indian serving institution, right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you will experience a certain level of um, kind of a, a, an understanding that maybe you don't quite belong, right? Mm -hmm. There is going to be some dissonance there of, okay, the person I am in this space aren't exactly meshing. How do I fit? Um, and so as a student attending all PWIs, yeah. um, I was not exposed to an alternative until well into when I was already going to school. Yeah. But the stories that I hear from my counterparts who also have attended institutions of higher education is that even at historically black colleges and universities, yes. there are very similar statements and a lot of it is due to patriarchy in higher education. That is correct. Yes. And HBCU grad. Right. Waiting to say that. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 I would say that that is because higher education was only for men until the early 1900s. And then once it was opened up to women, it was mostly white women. Mm -hmm. And then with HBCUs, we had to educate our own, right? Yeah. It was a lot of the classes available to women were at normal schools, were at teaching colleges, right? Mm -hmm. Or nursing colleges, Nursing right? and teaching, that was, that's Nursing it. and teaching mm -hmm. was it. That that's was all you got. <laughs> uh, so when people come into the fold, I think of my STEM students. I think of, you know, the, the, the stories I hear from my colleagues who I went to school with who majored in, you know, uh, business or majored in accounting or majored in, um, marketing or, or these really strongly, uh, largely male fields. Mm -hmm. um, finance is a good example. I have a friend, she's oh, an yeah. accountant. She tells me all the time that the education she received at the institutions of higher education mimicked what she got when she got in the real world, which is that she's going to be the only Black woman mm -hmm. and that there's going to be a lot of white men mansplaining her when she gets there. So that hub of understanding that where she went to school, she says, prepared her socially for when she entered the workforce. Agreed. Um, and unfortunately, I kind of don't know what to tell students when I say, pick your poison. Do you want to go somewhere where you have a really great social existence, where you feel welcomed, where you are allowed to thrive and develop as a person, mm -hmm. and where you will get some of a very good real world education, but that when you leave here, you're not going to have people who look like you around the corner every day? How do you want to do that? Or do you want to go somewhere where you don't have people who look like you, where you are starved in many capacities socially, where you're getting an education, but that education is going to be difficult? you're going to have to persist um and you'll have to find those people in that way um to better support you mm -hmm. in that capacity attending a pwi but someone has to tell that story and for me that person who told that story for me was um my step team captain when i was in 10th grade at high school <laughs> i'm just gonna be honest she told me when i was thinking of where i wanted to go to school she said you're going to get up to Tallahassee because I went to yep. Florida State. Um, you're going to get up to Tallahassee and you're going to be see this great institution across the tracks called Florida Agricultural Mechanical University. Yes. <laughs> and it's going to be a really safe space for you. But you cannot forget that you got to go back across those tracks. Go right back across. And go to Florida State. And 
that in some capacities, I think specifically the Black Student Union that that helps me. I, I joined several organizations that really, really mm-hmm. helped me. But you're not going to have that all the time. So how are you going to build the skills to move through difficult scenarios when you leave these colleges and universities? Yeah. And, and so I, I answer your question by saying this, that um, someone has to be the person to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And I think we do that by this, this, and this is a great yeah. example, right? Great um, your podcast is a great example, but I also think in real life, dismantling the barriers we place between ourselves as Black women mm-hmm. um, and being authentic and open to have those conversations about where we've come from and where we want to go so that future generations are educated and don't have to endure the same things yeah, and can then begin to dismantle brick by brick the secrecy, shame, dissonance, and imposter syndrome that has upheld a lot of these institutions of higher education. Um, Because if we don't believe that we belong there because no one told us that we do, we will continue to feel afraid as we enter these spaces, especially as we seek to be educated. Yeah. To to bring it sort of full circle where we started, this is all still new to us. Correct. we're, We're 50, 60 years in and yes, HBCUs have been around and and things have happened before then, but just the real period of enlightenment and progress and those sorts of things for Black people is still in a very sort of vulnerable and and I hesitate to say, you know, infantile uh, stage, Mm -hmm. absolutely a lot of work to be done. So so one of the things that we advocate for, for here is going beyond this avenue or uh, expectation of just personal responsibility to making it a collective. But um, I also think that the conversations are changing. When we did start having this liberation of black women, it was all about empowerment, empowerment. And that's sort of a a pet peeve of mine. I don't wanna see any more women's empowerment (laughs) only, empowerment only. Empowerment only, yes. Because it has to be tactical. It has to be strategic. Mm -hmm. It has to be, you know, well thought out. And um, that is what we need. And I think that piece is a little newer. We're figuring Mm -hmm. out actually how to do it now and not just to feel good and feel motivated about it. So again, I applaud you for being that pioneer and, and, just recognizing the responsibility. There are plenty of Black women and men who are in these positions who don't feel like it's their responsibility to bring other Black people up. They are fine with being the only one there. They are comfortable with their position and or they they have this mentality of if I did it you on my own, which we know no one ever does, but if I did it on my own, you, <laughs> you can, can do it on your own too. Mm-hmm. So it's it's so much so many dynamics within our own community that we're also facing and then it's external as well so I think we're in a great place it's just a lot of work to be done so any final words of wisdom for us um I don't like to think of my I I think of myself as a product of all the information that was poured into me. And so I, I will say that my wisdom is not, is not my own. My wisdom was taught to me. And so you mentioned tactile and, and skill-based things. I think that we are entering a new Black renaissance 
as mm-hmm. it relates to the sharing of ideas. I think a lot of virtual spaces throughout these last two years, as we've been in a pandemic, have kick-started a lot more of that renaissance. The wisdom I have is that it's imperative that we don't forget our purpose as we are moving through a lot of difficult spaces. Um, Our purpose is what is going to shine through on on the negative days are are the days where we're being challenged and I think that purpose is essential to cultivate new thoughts and ideas within ourselves Um, continuously try to self-develop continuously try to seek knowledge and be able to demand your space Mm -hmm. in these institutions Um, and so I will just say that um, stand up for yourself and and be the best version of you and remember why you you brought yourself here um and and be able and open and self-reflective to that i love that message and so thank you so much miss brianna jenkins for joining us today on our podcast um welcome to the 10k community Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this was a great conversation and we look forward to welcoming you back again one day. Yes, I already have an idea for part two. I was over here just thinking about it too. Yeah, it's really the the disciplinary action. So when you said you did that research Mm -hmm. and I wondered who the recipients of those letters actually were, what did they look like? Because another goal here is to tackle at the institutional level, what they need to do. And one of the areas that's highly discriminatory is in disciplinary action. Because one, you tend to have majority white in leadership and Mm -hmm. minorities in uh, in worker level positions, employee level positions. So by default, there's an imbalance Mm -hmm. and they are the recipients, employees who are coincidentally people of color tend to be um, more disciplined, and especially in comparison to their white counterparts. So that is what I'm thinking about. <laughs> Let's do it. Two. Let's do it. There's lots of research and mm-hmm. stories yes. that we could bring together for that. I think that's a great topic. That's mm-hmm. a good idea. Well, thanks again. Have a good one. Thank you so much. Y'all have a good one. Bye. Thanks for listening. Visit icomeasone.com for complete episode details and don't forget to like and share.